Matthew 17, 14 through 20. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. And some manuscripts insert here verse 21, which says, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Let him who has ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. Have you ever had what you, what might be called a mountaintop experience? An experience of glory? An experience, maybe, maybe not identical, definitely not identical to what Matthew, or what uh, Peter, James, and John had that we read about last week in the Transfiguration, but an experience on a mountaintop that was just wonderful. Only to have it followed by the normalcy of life, or perhaps a bitter dose of reality that reminded you that there is still difficulty in the world, and perhaps that it's closer than you would like to remember. Jesus, Peter, James, and John have just come down in the text we're reading this morning. They've come down from the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, where his glory was beheld. He conversed with Moses and Elijah about his coming exodus. Heard the declaration of his father that this Jesus was his beloved son with whom he was well pleased, and they were told to listen to him. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, the other disciples were there, and there's a struggle that was taking place. What they return to and what they find as they come down the mountain and come to this crowd that's formed is they find a father who's despairing. They find this crowd that is gathered. They find the other disciples that were defending themselves against the scribes who were accusing them. We read that in Mark's account of this in Mark 9. We know that there's a boy that's suffering, and we know that there's a demon that's torturing. They descend into a valley of need, and the need is both spiritual and physical, the greatest of which is spiritual. And we recognize that in Jesus' first, what he does first, he laments the condition of that generation. Then he heals this poor boy, and then he finishes with answering his disciples' question regarding their inability with instruction. In Jesus' speaking in this passage, we see him begin and end with the spiritual. And once again, witness the ease with which he resolved the physical affliction. But we also note that that physical affliction was caused by what? A spiritual being. As we witness Jesus' work in this passage, we hear him do something. We hear him lament. We see him heal. And we hear him teach his despondent disciples who had been unable to cast out a demon, which we note was something that 
that they had been given the authority to do. Back in Matthew 10, they, they, they failed here in that. And he, he teaches them. He teaches us too. As he taught his disciples in his day, he teaches us today. The question is, are we listening? Because recently we, he's told these disciples what the path of a disciple is. If you would come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And here we see what that looks like because Jesus is putting it on display. Not, and not, not, he's teaching consistently throughout this of what the life of a disciple looks like. And here we, we notice maybe three things. Here we discover that part of the path of the disciple is lament. Part of the path of disciple is healing, being healed. And also the discipline is part of that path as well. And so as we look at this, we want to get the scene because sometimes we read through this, or maybe it's one that we're familiar with, that they come down from the mountain and Jesus ends up casting out this demon and he deals with his father who his famous cry is, I believe, help my unbelief. That's what Mark records in chapter 9. But when we come down to this scene, what we come upon, it's been mentioned already, a father that's despairing. And you ever stop, and we have to, sometimes we want to read this story, and we want to read it slowly. This father, he's despairing. What had he endured throughout his life as the provider and the protector of his only son? We're told in Luke 9.38 that this is his only child, and that this condition has been upon this child from his youth. What had he endured throughout his life? What's more, in, in that day, the common belief was that either the child or the parent of that child had sinned against God for this condition to be upon them. We see that come up in John 9, where the disciples themselves asked Jesus about a different man. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? So knowing that that's the common belief of the day, what whispers had he heard behind his back? What looks maybe had he caught out of the corner of his eye that were cast toward him or towards his son? especially when maybe a fit had come upon him. He's famous for his cry recorded in Mark, I believe, help my unbelief, but that hasn't happened yet. The father, he's come and he's asked Jesus' disciples to do what? To cast out this demon, and they'd failed. Well, he comes to the disciples because the disciples, they're Jesus' representatives. And in the absence of the master, the deputies are the students, right? It's enough for a student to be like their teacher, they couldn't do the master's work. They'd failed. They'd healed disease. They'd cast out demons in the past. But here a demon stands behind this disease as we discover, and he resisted them successfully. So remember in Matthew 10, it says that Jesus gave them authority over all evil spirits to cast them out and to heal. And here they failed. So in their failure at this point, had doubt about Jesus' ability entered into this father's heart and mind due to his disciples' failure. So we see a father that's in despair. And it says that when he kneels at Jesus' feet, this isn't a kneeling in worship, it's a kneeling in request. It's requesting this healing. Give him credit, he's come to the right place. But there's despair that's present. When we see scribes from Mark 9.14, the scribes are present as well, and it seems that they're accusing, they're arguing, because, well... What have the disciples done? 
They failed. And anybody that's known engagement with an enemy, when, when you fail at something, enemies, they're really like, oh, that's too bad that it went that way for you. really wish it would have gone better. That's not how they respond, is it? Let the pile on ensue. And so you have scribes who have shown up, disciples have failed. It's an opportunity to impugn not just them, but who? This rabbi, this Jesus that they follow, that they believe. You know, and when someone starts to accuse, and you, you're, you're best, they're, talking, they're, they're accusing you, but they're also, by extension, accusing your best friend, this man that you followed for this significant amount of time now, we probably find the disciples here doing what? Defending him. But possibly also doing what? We couldn't do something that we've done before. Would doubt maybe sneak into your heart, your mind? So are they defending and doubting? We have no record of the disciples struggling in this area prior to this. Are they defending and simultaneously maybe doubting themselves or perhaps the genuineness of Jesus and his miracles? And they're people just like we are. They struggle just like we do. And I mean, whenever there's a scene, we know what happens. Who shows up? A crowd. A crowd is gathered. Well, because the crowd, what's all the fuss about? This crowd, it's all around. Came to a crowd. Maybe they wonder what's going on. Maybe they're taking sides in the arguing and the accusing that's taking place. Did the father have to fight his way through the crowd to Jesus? Were they standing in the way? We don't know, but I mean, these are all things that when we see the scene in our mind, things that can help us understand better. But notice who doesn't come up at all yet. The boy. Suffering. Suffering because we know that this has been his existence. The text literally says that this boy was a lunatic. We think of lunacy as insanity. But in the ancient world, people who believed in a strange or an erratic manner were thought to be moonstruck. So they were called lunatics from the Latin word luna, which means moon. Mark tells us the demon made him mute as well. How little peace had this boy known? Because he was mute, he couldn't speak. What scars did he wear? Because he's told us, I mean, where did this demon throw it? Into the fire, into the water. Anybody ever had a burn? It doesn't seem like this was a unique one-off experience. The father says he's done this, done this since his youth. He would wear the scars of that. If there were open wounds, he would be kept away from the community. Where was his mom? Was he now with his dad because she couldn't help protect him anymore? Was she at home because she had to remain behind as they went to find Jesus? Had she been injured by? Was she a casualty of one of his fits? We don't, we don't know. All of these are possibilities. But they're things that can help us maybe get deeper into the story. 
how had he been preserved? The love of a father. Who was the one who would pull him out of that fire? Who was the one who would pull him out of that water? He'd been preserved by the love of a father, and yes, even though it might be hard for Steve, he had been preserved by the restraining hand of the father. Because this didn't happen without God's noticing. We can't explain all this stuff that goes along with it, but we know that God was not unaware of this. And who had restrained it? Who had restrained this demon from doing what we see and know that this demon wants to do? The same one who bound Satan in that narrative of Job. Because what this demon was doing, it was torturing this boy. We see him doing in Scripture what demons always do. They act according to their character and the character of their leader. Their only desire is to cause suffering and pain and death, and it's no different here. Its last-ditch effort was to cause a fit as the boy was brought forward to Christ, and then when Jesus does his work of casting this demon out, what does it do? It leaves and makes the boy appear as what? Dead. It wants to deceive and scare everyone that's there. So if they can bring about, if they can bring about their evil purpose by inspiring unbelief, that's all the better. That's the scene that we come into. And there's probably more that could be considered, but we want to feel the weight of it because it says, they came down to the crowd. A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, you ever wonder at the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth? Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? We're going to pause there. This is an odd first statement. And one that gives a glimpse, I think, into the emotional life of our Savior as well as the priorities of our Lord. The priority that he puts first and foremost is what? The physical or the spiritual? It's the spiritual. But these words that he speaks, faithless and twisted generation, doesn't seem to be a compliment. Some, some, some translations say, faithless or unbelieving and perverse. It's not any more complimentary. The Greek word is apistos. Pistos is the word for faith. It's the Greek word for faith. And we're familiar with what the a on the front of it does. We have it in our language. It's come across in, in agnostic. Because they don't, gnosis is knowledge. They don't have knowledge. Here, apistos. What did he just say they don't have? No faith. You know faith and twisted generation, this unbelieving, twisted, perverse. 
John Calvin would note it this way, we're curved in on ourselves. It's the effect of sin. What does it mean to twist something? Something's taken and it's warped from its original form. Who does he address this to? There's any number of people who volunteer. Oh, it's towards the Father. No, it's towards the disciples. It's towards towards the crowd. It's towards the scribes. He speaks it where? In the hearing of all. He addresses this to all who were there. Scribes, crowd, Father, Son, and yes, disciples. So he makes this cry, oh, faithless and twisted generation, and then he moves into how long? How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? These are the words of lamentation. These are the words of lament. They're words that if you've read the Psalms or you like to read through the Psalms, The psalmist, you hear this come off the psalmist's lips repeatedly throughout the book of Psalms. Fifteen times, the psalmist. And it's all in response to difficulty and suffering. Isaiah, when he receives his commission, he has this wonderful vision of God in his throne room, and and, and he's been cleansed. And God says, who shall I send? Who will go? And Isaiah says, send me. And God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take my word. And the people, they're not going to listen. They're going to refuse it all. And Isaiah, he can feel the weight of this and the sorrow of it. And he cries out, how long? How long shall I do this? How long will I go forward with your word and the people not listen? And what God tells him is basically until there's nothing left. The saints in Revelation 6.10, in heaven, under the throne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's a cry that's even present there. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood? They're not discontent with where they are, but they still feel the weight of that burden. How long until your sovereign rule, your perfect rule, will overcome all things? That's what they hunger and they thirst for. Maybe you've said those words. Have you ever said how long? Fill in the blank. When you say how long... Is it because you think everything's wonderful and peachy keen? Or is it out of frustration often? Or disappointment? Any number of other things you could put in there. And, and I, think we, I, think there is, I think there is frustration here. But we have to be careful when we say that, don't we? Because every frustration we've ever known is infected with what? Sin. But the frustration of our Savior, remember, he was angry and, and, and didn't sin. He had frustration so strange to us, it's frustration, yet it's there's no sin in it. When we get frustrated, it's often due to something not benefiting us or inconveniencing us. But Jesus, here's the one that I think there's frustration here, but what is that frustration? It's the burden of sin. It's the one who 
Where was he when everything was made? Colossians tells us he's the one through whom everything was made. He's the one that knows what it was made for. He knows what it was designed for. He knows its intent. And what does he see here? He didn't make them to be unbelieving. He didn't make them to be twisted. And yet that's what sin has done. Remember, he's the one, and we have a tendency to say, oh no, Jesus would never be frustrated. He wouldn't. But, but if he wasn't, if he was not, then what do we do with Hebrews 4.15? Here is the one who, in, he's the high priest who knows exactly what we struggle against because he's the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What does that tell us? That he knew frustration and the temptation it presents, and yet was without sin. So I think there is there, but it's that burden of sin. What had become of his creation? Unbelieving. It's twisted. But one of the things we note, lamentation is not despair. They're different. And we see it come across very clearly because he utters this cry, this cry of lamentation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? But there's not despair because what does he say next? Bring him here to me. Words of mercy. Words of hope. Bring him here to me. And what happens? The demon's rebuked. And what? It's gone. Mark tells us the boy appeared to be dead, and Jesus did what? If he appears to be dead, he's not upright. Where is he? And what does our Savior, God incarnate, what does he do? What does he do? It says he was healed instantly, but then he appeared as dead, and Jesus did what? Took him by the hand. Jesus was not Inspector Gadget. How would he have to do it? He would have to bend down. Because if he appeared as dead, where would that boy's arm stay? So it wasn't that he reached down and the boy lifted his hand up. It's he went all the way down and grabbed that hand and lifted him up. In the original creation, the first creation, what did God do? He stooped down and he formed out of the dust this man and he breathed life into him. And then he sinned and died. In the new creation, what does he do? He does it again. But he does it in such a way that it can never be corrupted again. He reaches down and he raises up what he did with this boy. And he brings life there. He took him by the hand. He lifted him up. He was healed instantly. Guess what? You know what he still does? When his healing comes, it heals 
instantly. He takes by the hand and lifts up. This is what we are daily called to do to bring him or her to Jesus. What they did with this, bring him to me. I don't know if it was his father or if it was those in the crowd. Because it doesn't tell us. It just says, bring him here to me. And it appears that they brought him to him, whoever it was. That's what we're called to do with those that God's placed around us. We bear witness to him in how we live and how we speak and how we think and how we act and how we witness and how we proclaim the gospel. When someone comes into our presence, whether it be the individual or the community, they come into the presence of God. And wherever we go, we bring the presence of God with us. When we say this, we are not saying that God wasn't there already. Scripture makes it clear that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But we, what we are saying, we are saying that his reconciling presence comes with his people because the gospel is a message that must be heard so that it can be known and that life would come through it by the power of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. That's what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21. He says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because of this, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're messengers of reconciliation. Reconciliation is what brings life. It's that message of the gospel. It's that bring him here to me, and I filled you, my children, with my spirit, that you would go and you would take this life and bear witness to it, and that when others come in and they're among you, they would hear the truth of this gospel proclaimed that they can be raised from the dead. Because he heals. And when his healing comes, it comes instantly. And so we see, we see his lament. We see the hope and the healing. And then he teaches. The disciples came to Jesus privately. Because when you're heartbroken, how do you come to the person you want to talk to? When you're hurting, do you come with a big crowd around you? I don't think so. It says that they came to him privately and they said, do you feel the weight and do you hear maybe the brokenness that's in this question? The desire for understanding. Why? Why could we not cast it out? Jesus, we've done this before. You gave us authority back in Matthew 10.1, before it was Matthew 10.1. That came many years later. You gave us the authority to do this, and we couldn't do it. And maybe, maybe we see the, the difficulty. Why could we not cast it out? Jesus gives another answer. And it's beautiful. 
Jesus has this beautiful way. He never pulls any punches. But even though he never pulls any punches, he doesn't quench the smoldering wick or break the bruised reed. Because this answer, listen to his answer to these, his closest friends. Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. And how little was that faith? He says, if your faith was the size of what? A mustard seed, the smallest you know, cultivated seed at that time, right? One of the, he used it as an illustration earlier about the kingdom of heaven. It's like a mustard seed, right? So my faith isn't even what? It's not even that big. Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, and notice there, there's a mountain there. Remember, they were up on a mountain. They came down the mountain and encountered the crowd. So they're probably looking at that mountain where three of them had just seen the most wonderful thing they'd ever seen in their lives. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now, does that mean physically we walk out Mount Edith, move from here to there, and they'll do it. I mean, I'm not going to limit God. But we have to understand that in the culture of the day, in the Jewish idiom, in the lore of the day, the idea of moving mountains through faith was part of the metaphorical understanding of the power of trusting God. Right? We go, I want to see a mountain move. Okay. That would be great. I mean, that would be really cool. You would never forget it. But do you remember what we said about the priority of the spiritual over the physical? Is it more impressive to see a physical mountain move from there to there or to see a dead person brought to life? The dead brought to life. It's not even close. Because how possible is it to bring the dead to life. You can't. You cannot. Mustard seed faith. Mustard seed faith is also living faith. But what do we know about that mustard seed for it to do what it needs to do? It has to be planted. And in that planting, what happens? It's broken. And it grows. Jesus implies to his disciples in Matthew 21, in, in the earliest manuscripts, it's not there, but it's included in the Mark account, Mark 9:29. This kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. What does Jesus imply there? And sometimes we miss that. He implies that the disciples didn't do what? Pray. Were they trying to do it by their own power? I mean, the applications here become important. Disciplined disciples, they pray. And when it calls for it, they fast. And we know how legalistic people can get about this. It goes without saying that the language of faith is prayer. Paul tells us pray without ceasing. When it comes to fasting, why would we call it a fast? We would call it a fast to intensify that time. 
to rely upon the truth that God, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so I come into that fasting time because what? Because I really, I'm really relying upon that, but I don't become prescriptive about it. How often should I? That's between the believer and God. There are times that groups will come together to fast over important decisions or the heartache and heartbreak because of what's going on in their world, and they call for that time to come together. And it's of the individual believer's choice to join into that. What comes to application, we talked about lament, we talked about healing, we talked about discipline because it's part of the life of a disciple. We mentioned lament. Lament is not despair. Because despair sees no way out, sees no way of change, it's no hope. It's the, we're doomed! It's chicken little. The sky is falling and there's nothing I can do about it. That's not, that's not what lament is. Paul talks about two kinds of despair. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 9, he speaks of a despair. They despaired of life itself because of the physical condition they were in. That it did not appear that there was a, a way of physical deliverance out of it. They despaired of their physical life. It wasn't the despair of the spiritual life because he gets to the end and he says, but that was, not, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So he speaks in the beginning of 2 Corinthians about there was this despair because of the physical situation that they were in. But in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, and 9, he clarifies. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. So even in the midst of despairing circumstances where it doesn't appear that we're going to be physically delivered, there was no despair about whose hands this was in and whose hands were safe and whose hands deliverance will come however it comes. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Because here's the thing, lament. When we think about lament, lament implies what? Something's gone wrong. Lament only makes sense if we know that something is not the way it's supposed to be. And lament expresses the hope that there's a means of healing, of restoration, of recreation. Biblical lament is expressed to God, sometimes by one person. Could be a psalmist, could be a prophet, could be by a group of people, by Israel. It can be raw. It's specific. And sometimes you read those psalms where lament comes in and it's unfiltered and it's a little, makes you wiggle in your seat a little bit. It's like, ooh, can you say that to God? Yes. We don't remain there. Because lament, it is a complaint, but it's a complaint that we take where? To God and say, I know that you're God. I know that you're not unaware. And how long, oh Lord, this is in your hands. Lament recognizes things aren't the way they're supposed to be, takes them to the one in whose hands they're in, and moves beyond that complaint to, I know the problem, and I'm coming towards you because I know your promises, and I know your previous faithful action. It recognizes the situation for what it is. And it brings it to God with all the hurt that's present in it. And does say, how long? And waits. Jesus' lament in this passage was about a faithless and twisted generation. What about our generation? He was speaking to Israelite people, inclusive of his disciples. We want to apply this to those outside the church. But what about the church? 
that the world is faithless and twisted, it's well established. It has been since Genesis 3. That God's set-apart people would also be as incongruous with what we are in Christ and called to be in Him by the power of His Spirit. That's what Paul was taking issue with when he wrote to the Corinthians. We should lament the condition of the world, for the world is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we want to see it remade by Him. And we know it will be. We must also lament when we see faithlessness and twisting in the church and address it by God's means. How often has difficulty in the church, it's a real situation, but it's been dealt with according to human means. Let's not do that. Deal with it with God's provision, with God's means. Because we have to remember that life is given through Christ and sustained through Christ. And it's brought by His Word and His Spirit and His Spirit. He brings together previously faithless and twisted people into His church. And He sends those same people who were previously faithless and twisted people into a world that is faithless and twisted and needful of hearing only of the healing that only He can give and that He chooses to bring through His people. Because we serve and follow and worship and proclaim a God who does not find beautiful things. He makes things, people, beautiful. That's what he does. What is he going to find that's beautiful in a fallen, twisted, and unfaithful world? Only that which he makes that way. We go out with that message. Do we lament over what Christ lamented? We need to. And we need to work as Christ worked. Healing comes. It's given through Christ and only through Him. Healing comes through His Word, empowered by His Spirit. Here's the thing, though. It doesn't always come about in the same way that we can see. Right? God's the healer. There has been only one man who walked the face of the earth who could say that He is the healer, and that's Jesus. There are those that He gave the gift of healing to, but they were not, make no mistake, they were not the what? They were not the healer. Jesus was the healer. He is the healer. His people are tools in his hands that he will sometimes heal through, but he doesn't do it the same way every time. We've been healed and we take the healing of God into the world. Think about Jesus' miracles. How many miracles have you read about Jesus where he does it exactly the same way every time? No, it's his MO to do it differently, isn't it? Sometimes he touches, sometimes he spits, sometimes he makes mud and rubs it on eyes. Sometimes he, he just says, bring him to me. And the next thing we know, he rebukes the demon and the boy as well. I mean, there's so many different ways that he does this. I mean, we had an example way back when in Exodus. You ever considered the water miracles in Exodus? There was bitter water made sweet by what? Moses, throw that log into it. Oh, okay. And it becomes sweet. There was God's instruction to Moses to go strike the rock and water would flow. Okay, strike the rock, water flow. Then there was God's instruction to do what the next time? Speak to the rock. That's the third different way, by the way, if you're keeping track. Every time God wanted to, God's desire, and what he was going to do was provide what? Water for his people. In his time, in his way, by his design. But Moses, that third time, what did he do? He went out and he struck the rock. God said, that's not what I told you. 
His intent was to provide water for his people, and he would do it in his way. And make no mistake, the God who said, let there be light, and there was, he has more ways of providing water for his people than we could ever conceive of. Moses acted in accordance with previous experience, which was a wonderful experience, but he acted in accordance with previous experience despite God's specific instruction. He said, this is how God works, and so I'm going to do the same thing. No. No, Moses. This is the negative side of experience. Last week, we spoke of the positive side of experience and how God provides us with experiences that are wonderful and can help us in our witnessing to his power, to his presence, and to his provision. But those those experiences are not to become the object of our faith or what our faith rests in. If they do, there's a simple word for that. It's called idolatry. Those experiences are not to become the object of our faith or what it rests upon. They are there to remind us of the wonder of our God and our Savior and to remind us to rest upon the one who knows every need and will provide all that's necessary in the perfect way at the perfect time. When we begin to think that because this was how God worked previously, that he has to work that way again, we begin to dictate to God. He works through Christ, his spirit, his word, and his people. That is what's consistent, that he's at work in all those things. I mean, think about what we like. We like to say lightning never strikes what? Twice. So if this lightning that was created by God never strikes twice, why would we think that the one who made the lightning would always work the same way every single time? Let us repent of our desire. And what it is, we want to make God predictable. Because if I make God predictable, then I have what? control. Let us repent of our desire to make God predictable and know that he is always good. Humble ourselves and ask him to work as he chooses in every situation. And discipline. The life of a disciple is a life of discipline. A disciple without discipline is an oxymoron. It's not a disciple. We mentioned prayer. It's the language of faith. Fasting, it can be an intensifier. But James talks about prayer. He talks about it a lot. In James 1, 5 through 8, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. Sometimes don't we go to God and go, I don't know what to pray. Good, say it. God, I don't know what to pray and I want the wisdom to know how to pray, so show me how to pray. What have you just asked for? Wisdom to know what? How to pray, which is to what? To go to him with it. In James 4, 1 through 3, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war in you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Remember what Jesus said? This kind only comes out through prayer. It leads us to the conclusion that the disciples didn't what? They didn't pray. They didn't ask. You don't have because you don't ask, you ask, and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. 
Disciples will pray. It's not always going to be easy to pray. We're not always going to have the words to pray. But we're still called to do what? Go to Him. Have you ever had com comfort in, in the presence of a loved one just sitting in silence? Their presence was enough. We will not always have words to say. And sometimes that's good because God has said, be still and what? And know that I am God. So if you don't have the words, don't beat yourself up. Say, God, I don't have any words. When you want me to have the words, give me the words. And if you're at a lack for words and you know you need to pray something, there's a book with 150 psalms that were written by God himself as inspired by the people that he called the right one. Pray his words back to him. Pray his words back to him. He hears them. He responds. So when you look at this, we know that Jesus has told us what the path of the disciple requires. So let us not despair. For he's walked that path. He walked it perfectly. And not only called us to follow him, but through his spirit, he's empowered us to do so. He's shown us how we walk that path. He's given us glimpses of it. We walk that path lamenting, and we lament, and we rejoice. Because lament means we know that it's not the way it's supposed to be, but we know you've come, and all will be set right. We go healing. Not that we can heal, but we've been healed, and we point to the one who still heals and continues to heal. And we go in discipline. Here specifically as regards prayer. Asking him for what he's promised. Come to him. Follow him in the power he provides. Fellow believers, rejoice. If you have stumbled along this path, know that you're not alone. There's not one who's walked this path that hasn't stumbled. And that as they've walked it with their brothers and sisters and stumbled, there's been ones there say, we're here. And we repent. And he does what? Again, the same thing he did when he first brought you to life. Picks you up. Sets you on that path. Let's continue with me. That's a joyful thing. So continue upon this path that he has lifted you up and set you upon. And do it in all the ways that he did, imitating him. 